All right. So uh, today we're going to be continuing on in our in our journey through Matthew. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11. And as I'd mentioned before, because we're actually going through the entire New Testament and we're doing all four Gospels, obviously back to back, it gives us the opportunity of doing larger sections of Scripture and dealing them in a dealing with them in a slightly less verse-for-verse manner. Some of them we will, other ones we won't. In this particular chapter, as I was reading, one of the things that came to my mind immediately as I was looking at it is, is the, uh, this, this title of this message is The Destructive Power of Doubt and uh, how that kind of theme runs through this entire chapter. So I thought I would take a look at that and we would use this conversation uh, with John in, in regards to this, this, this power of doubt um, because I think it, it's, it's very important for us today to understand that, that doubt isn't just something that weak people get involved with. You know, well, you doubt because you're weak. You, your, your faith, you know, your faith, you, you have, you have doubt about your Christianity because your faith is weak. That's, that's not true. It's not the way it works. We all experience doubt at some point in mind, uh, at some point in time. And it's usually because we're listening to too many things. We have, we have one voice, we have one voice called the scriptures trying to get us information in one direction. And we're listening to all this noise that, that pulls on our, on our emotions on another side. And we start to waffle between the two. Which one do I want to believe? The, uh, the person who's tugging on my heartstrings or, or the word of God, that old dusty Bible? You know, which one do I want to actually put my faith in? So we, we end up in this, in this middle ground that's not a good place to be in. But now the good part is that each of us at some point in time in our lives, we experience good days. We have, we have days of, well, I'll call them days of light, where everything goes well. You know, everything is clicking. It's like, the, it's like the rhythm of your life is right there. You're convinced that God has assigned an angel to walk next to you, and he's clearing the way. Everything works. Doubt is nowhere near. Confidence is the word of the day. Everything just works. Now, I promise you, at some point in time, that will happen at least once. You may have been three, <laughs> and you don't remember. But either way, you know, but no, no, this does happen, and we remember those days. And one of the reasons that we get so frustrated in the darker days is because we remember those days. We're like, why can't it be like that? What did I do? Am I, am I, am I, am I listening to the wrong music? Did I wake up a minute too early? You know what it was? I woke up before my alarm. That's what it was, and it just ruined my whole rhythm for the day. The reason that we remember those good days so well is because darker days come. It's just a given. We don't live on the mountaintop. We journey from mountaintop to mountaintop. But the problem is there's a downhill, a valley, and an uphill to get from mountaintop to mountaintop. And we got to go through those days. No one wants the dark days to come, but guess what? They do. So as Christians, what do you do? How do you walk through those days and not only maintain your faith, but grow it? Not simply maintain, you're walking through the dark, difficult days and just maintaining your faith is not enough. Where you grow your faith is in the valleys. You don't grow your faith on the mountaintops. Exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
<coughs> Excuse me. So as Christians, is it okay for us to have doubt? I've heard so many people, and, on, and online, I mean, Facebook and YouTube, two of the most useless digital platforms on the earth, but yet they're there, so we've got to attach, we've got to connect it to it at some point in time. Uh, I think, what was the old, uh, the, there's an old cartoon, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook all got together, and they farmed a new platform, it's called UTwitFace. <laughs> it's no wonder so many people are confused. There's, there's more self-appointed scholars, biblical scholars on Facebook and YouTube than you can count. And the problem is 99.9% of them should never be listened to because they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. They say things like, fear is the absence of faith. Really? Jesus experienced fear. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, bled, when he sweated blood. He was crying. Blood was coming out. That, that's fear, folks. Fear is not the absence of faith. Sometimes fear is just an awareness of what's going on. Let me give you a good example. Let's say I'm walking through the woods somewhere. I'm up in Alaska. I'm just kind of trucking around, just wanting to see the sights. And all of a sudden, a 900-pound grizzly bear starts charging me. Is fear the absence of faith or awareness of the reality of my situation? It's probably just an awareness that these legs don't run that fast. They don't climb that fast either. I might as well just stop, sit down, and enjoy the view until I'm lunch. <laughs> no. Christians have doubt just like anybody else. Now, here's, here's the thing. This is what doubt actually is. <clears throat> we talk about the word. Doubt is the mental state in which the mind remains suspended between two or more contradictory uh, uh, propositions, unable to be certain of any of them. Doubt on an emotional level is, the in, uh, in, is indecision between belief and disbelief. Did you hear that? Between belief and disbelief. It may involve uncertainty, distrust, or a lack of conviction on certain facts, actions, motives, or decisions. That's doubt. Doubt comes when you're, com- when you're presented with one or more options and you're not sure which option to take, so you take neither. That's the destructive nature of doubt. It keeps you from making a choice. And this is what happens with Christians. We know, we hear things like this. I know what the Bible says, but, but, you know, these, the, uh, these, the, uh, I know what the Bible says about immorality, but these are my friends. Uh, okay, then if they're your friends, then you should tell them about what the Bible says about immorality. See how that works? I know the Bible says I shouldn't be a drunk, but you don't understand the stress in my life. No, I'm pretty sure God understands the stress in your life. You see, we get stuck between what we want and what God tells us we need. And we make this point in our life. If you were to chart the life in a, in a, as a line in most Christians' life, it, it kind of goes up and then we, 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 we go off to the side. We're following Christ now. And then all of a sudden, you got the world's line over here. And every now and then it pops back. And we come up and we pop back and we pop back. And then we stay over here for a little while because it's a little more fun. And then we come back over when we think we need it. Because we don't see that the, the doubt that we have about what God teaches is because we're not convinced that it's right. We're not fully convinced that this is the path that, I, that my life needs to be on. We like certain things about Christianity. We like certain things about God, but we don't know. We haven't committed ourselves to this path 
Come hell or high water, I'm on this path. Because when we do, when the world says you shouldn't do this because it's unkind, but you, you know what? God's word says this is the direction we're supposed to go into. I don't care what the world says. I'm going this way. See, that's certainty. Wherever it leads, no matter the trouble, no matter what's going on, I'm going this way. I don't care what's going on over here. God is over here. This is the direction I'm going. That's a lack of doubt. That's certainty. But in America today, we've rebranded certainty and what we would call um, uh, faith, grounded faith. We've rebranded it in a lot of the church as arrogance. I've heard this said to me multiple times. Are you so arrogant that you would believe that the Bible is right about everything? <laughs> I was like, Can you, would you just do me a favor and listen to yourself say that? <laughs> no, I'm convinced that the Bible is right about everything, so I have no reason to doubt it no matter what's going on. And if the world wants to see me as arrogant, that's fine. That's their choice, not mine. The reality is that doubt in our life is as certain as joy, hope, faith, and fear. Guaranteed, you're going to deal with it. Guaranteed. And we find ourselves in this portion of scripture looking at the repercussions of that doubt in, I think, three different ways. When I read this, I see doubt being looked at in three different ways. One is um, we, doubt, uh, we doubt our faith in what God has done. We get into a bad situation. We doubt what God has done in the past. We doubt our trust in what God is doing. And then we doubt our hope in what God will do. Okay? We question what God has done. We don't trust what God is doing, and we don't have hope in what he says he will do. And this causes us to get stuck in the middle. And we hope that if we stick it out, eventually God will work it out for us. But that's actually not what God is trying to do. God is trying to get you to make a choice. Follow me or don't. It's not an easy choice. So let's look at this first one. Doubting what God has done for us. So here's a question for you. How often do we look back on the things that God has done in our lives and in the lives of others and doubt what we know is true? In the moment when it happened, no doubt in our mind whatsoever, but the farther away we get it and the more reality comes, the more the the reality of life comes to revisit us, we start to doubt what God has done. Now listen to this, Matthew 11, one through six. It says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his, his 12 disciples, Excuse me, that he departed there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, that means that he went back to the cities that they had previously been doing miracles in, just so they understand, like, where he was going specifically. And when John heard, uh, when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look to another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead will rise up, and the poor, uh, uh, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's a strange answer, isn't it? Like, what, what, that's, why not just, yes. It seems like that would be a little bit, but yes, I'm the one. But that's not what he says. <clears throat> but okay, which John are we talking about here? We're talking about John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist is the man. He's, he's the guy, right? You know, smelly camel hair wearing, locust eating guy. 
out in the middle of nowhere, proclaiming the way of the Lord, make way, the, make, make straight his paths. Like the guy prophesied through the Old Testament. He's the one who's going to be the man crying out in the wilderness. This is the guy everyone wants to listen to. Great is his faith. And he will come because he is Elijah. We're going to see that here in a second. Some of you will go, wait a second. Elijah returned. Yep. Remember, Elijah didn't die. Elijah was taken to heaven. He just kind of come back for a little while because he had a job to do. There's some amazing things going on here. But this is John. How, how is it that he is saying, go and see if this Jesus guy is really the one? How does he not know? How is it that he has doubt? Well, there's a couple of reasons why he would have doubt. At this point in time in the life of John, he has been in prison somewhere between a year and 18 months. We know that John was put in prison, but a lot of people think that John was put in prison and like a couple weeks later he was executed. No. He was in prison for almost two years altogether. Now, the prison that John was in was underground. Larry, it was not the type of prison that we have today. Okay? There was no workout courtyard. He didn't get cable. He wasn't allowed to complain because the food wasn't gluten-free or vegan. Right? It was underground, which meant no windows, stale old air, lit by maybe a torch, or you may have been sitting for days in the dark. It also meant that it was very damp. Now, if you've ever had to be in a place where it's damp for a long period of time, you start to get sores. You start, your skin actually becomes very, very soft. And when you bump into something, it doesn't, even just sitting down sometimes, your skin will tear. Here's the problem with being in that environment. It will not heal. When you're in a constant, damp, dark environment like that, your sores don't heal. And it would take a few weeks before this started happening. He's been here for a year to 18 months. Chances are he was beaten on a regular basis. There's no way that he was being fed correctly. How long would you last before you began to doubt the love of God in your life? He was told from the very beginning, from the very early days of his life, you are the one prophesied, you will, you will be the one heralding the, the Messiah. You are the one preparing the way. God has great plans for your life. God is going to use you. There's great things ahead of you. And now he's sitting in a rotten, nasty, damp, dirty, dark cell, literally wasting away. And he gets to the point where he says, and this is my own personal opinion. Scholars argue this. I think he knew he wasn't going to be around for very long. And I think he was worried that he did not fulfill the task that God has put before him. That's my personal opinion. People have different ones, but that's the way I look at it based on what I'm seeing in scripture. Part of that has to do with the way Jesus answers him, which I'll I'll explain here in just a second. He sends his disciples, find out if this is the one. Is, are you the one? Almost like saying, can I rest now? Is this okay? Have, have, you, have you arrived? And Jesus answers him in the most amazing way. 
Ask yourself this question. Did John's doubt need to be freed from prison or did he just need to know that things were going according to God's plan? Jesus answers him like this. Go and tell John these things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have had the gospel preached to him. Why that? Why did Jesus answer that way? Jesus answered that way because these were prophesied in Isaiah. Check this out. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall go unstopped. The lame shall leap like the deer, and the tongue of the dumb uh, uh, sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the uh, Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and open of the prisons uh, to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. This was the answer that Jesus gives back to his disciples. John was prophesied through the Old Testament. And Jesus says, the prophecies that are attached to me, I am fulfilling. Yes, I am the one. He answers him directly without giving him a direct answer. I love that. Perfect politics. John needed to be reassured that he had fulfilled his role, that he was on task. He did what God had asked him to do, and Jesus was assuring him that the plans of God are well in hand. And this is something we need to understand. Even if the world takes you captive, throws you in a prison, doesn't tortures you, doesn't feed you, you're covered in sores, your body is basically dissolving in front of you, it doesn't make any difference if you're doing what God has placed in front of you, Everything is happening as it should. No matter how bad your life gets, if you are following the path that God lays before you, it's fine. At the end of the day, we get to the destination. I don't necessarily want to get there the same way John did. He was beheaded. I'd like to, you know, die an old man in my bed, you know, many, many, many years from now. But sometimes that's just not what happens. But at the end of the day, it's still okay. Because we're all headed to the same place. My old pastor, Tim Grant, one of the last things that he said on his radio, uh, he did a little radio program on memory of the old WBJS uh, station. The, actually, it was the last thing he said on air. It was trusting God, trust in Jesus. He's got it all under control. But that trust, see, when things are good, you don't need trust. <laughs> It's when things are bad that you need trust. When things are difficult, you start to trust. When you're pushing the envelope, that's when you start to trust. Stars shine when it's night, not during the day. John needed to be reminded and assured that God was still in control. And sometimes we need the same thing. Sometimes, folks, you need the same thing. You may be going through a moment or a dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes we need to remember what God has done. And if you don't have faith in today, at least have faith in yesterday and what God has done. We remember those things. Let's keep going. Doubting what God, doubting what God is doing right in front of us. Starting in verse 7, it reads like this. 
As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John. This is, there's some amazing passages in here. Pay special attention to verse 14. We'll get back to it in a minute. He said to the multitude concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft, soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you, would have remained until this day. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John, uh, John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until now, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. But to who shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting at the marketplace, calling their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not, not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he, was a, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. This is a fun word to say, wine-bibber. Say that 10 times really fast. Ready? One, never mind, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. But he began to rebuke the cities which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Shorazin, and I'm sure Zin, that's the name. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works which were done in you which, uh, had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon uh, uh, than on the day of judgment for you. Woe to you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I don't know about you, but that's not something I want to hear from Jesus. Call me crazy? Not really looking forward to that kind of, kind of uh, thought process there. Now, I want to make a quick note before we move along. Verse 14, John is Elijah. That messes with people. It tends to mess with them. He says, you were the one that was foretold. If you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He was prophesied beforehand. And remember, Elijah didn't die. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I didn't put that verse in. I'm sorry. It's 2 Kings 2.11. It says, Then it happened that the prophet, before coming, uh, uh, becoming of the great and dreadful day of the door, Lord, that is not what I'm looking at. I'm reading from my book, not the screen. Never mind. This is what happens when your glasses don't work all the time. <laughs> then it happened as they continued and talked, and suddenly a chariot of fire appeared in the horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He didn't actually have to face mortal death. He was taken bodily into heaven. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. There are some amazing things in regard to the relationship between John the Baptist and Elijah that we're not going to get into today. We're going to get into it when we get into chapter 17. So, ha <laughs> you're going to have to wait. It really is pretty cool. But Jesus asked some questions in regard to John. 
he starts grilling the crowd. Now, these are the same people who were baptized. A lot of these people were baptized by John. A lot of these people listened to John speak. They would leave the cities and they would come out and they would listen to this guy. And Jesus is saying, what did you come out to see? Did you just come out to see a spectacle? Did you just come out to see, you know, I don't know, a miracle? Did you just come out to see something? Did you just need a spiritual fix or did you come out for something specific? Did you come out here to hear the word of the Lord from a prophet? Or did you just come out here because it was something to do on a Wednesday afternoon? Why are you here? Part of me wonders how, how many times he would ask that of the churches, especially the big churches that have, you know, the big spectacles and, and just almost like a Broadway show every Sunday. He might be asking people who are going to those churches, what are you going here for? Is it the lights? Is it the fog machine? Is it the electric guitar? Or are you seeking something that you can't get anywhere else? Why are you here? Now that's, that's a tough question. Why are we here? Why are you here today? It's Father's Day and I had to come. Mm. There's ice cream. It's really, you know, all it is. Uh, this is where I meet my friends. <laughs> there are better ways to do this, folks. But Jesus wants to know what you came to see. And the thing is, what Jesus knew is that a lot of the people who were out there listening, out there seeing, were stuck in a place of doubt. They had seen the works of God. They had seen what John had accomplished. They had seen the miracles of Jesus, yet they still hadn't made a choice. They still hadn't committed to a path. They've experienced all the religious stuff. They've seen all the things that the Bible has talked about, but they have not committed to the path. They're stuck between belief and disbelief. Part of, the, a part of me just thinks that people get stuck there because they know what the right path is, but they like where they are. I know what I should do, but I like who I am. I like the music I get to listen to. I like the movies that I watch. I know I shouldn't be on those websites, but I like them. And maybe down the road, when I've had my fill of this world, I'll finally commit. The Bible refers to that as willful sin. Jesus talks about the cities that he went and ministered to <coughs> and all the miracles that he did there. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These were cities. I want you to think about this. These were cities where Jesus ministered. Not just one of the disciples, where Jesus himself ministered. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, came to proclaim the gospel. He healed the sick. He raised the dead, performed miracles, and people still didn't commit. Scripture specifically says they refused to repent. They didn't believe the message. They didn't want to change who they were. They just wanted what Jesus had. Jesus says, we did everything scripture said that we would do. And it's still not enough. We cast out demons and you say, it's because we're a demon. It's a trick. 
We avoid the pompous people who elevate themselves in religious circles and we, and we spend time with, with common men that these, that, that the arrogant religious leaders wouldn't spend time with. And you say that we're not of God because we spend time with the people that you think we should spend time with. If Jesus cared, he'd, he'd, he'd spend time with sinners and tax collectors. So he does. And what do they say? That's, see, he can't be the Messiah. He spends time with sinners and tax collectors. It's amazing. And Jesus is saying, if, if half the miracles that I had done in these cities were done in the cities that were destroyed because of their sin, they would have repented. Anyone ever heard someone say this? If Jesus really wants me, if, if, I can, if Jesus showed up and performed a miracle in front of me, I'd believe. Sure about that? Because it's happened before and people didn't. And why does, why does God have to perform tricks for you? Why does Jesus have to pull a miracle out of his hat to get your attention? Dying on the cross to pay for your sin, to give you entrance into heaven forever, it wasn't enough? But you see, we doubt what's right in front of us. <laughs> we don't want what's right in front of us. What we want is the dream. What we want is what we believe we want, especially today in the modern church. You think about the things that are prophesied in the Bible about the end days and about the, 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 the disintegration of the church, the things that God promises are going to happen. We're seeing them right in front of our eyes. It's, it's happening. I didn't put this in my, in, in my notes today, but I, I, uh, I, I grabbed this one. If I didn't lose the page. Oh, there it is. Second Timothy four says, I charge you there, uh, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. This is why for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who are they? A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who are they? It's the church. A time will come when the church will stop listening to sound doctrine. But they, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's a real simple Sunday school question. How do we know the difference between fables and sound doctrine? I can find sound doctrine in here. You don't find fables in here. You don't find fables in the word of God. What you find, fa- where you find fables is when you, fi- you hear someone who says, I know what the Bible says, but this isn't all the Bible has to say. God's continuing to speak. And God told me, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. When people say, all the, all the organized religions in the world have it wrong. Oh, yeah, but you got it right. 
That's awesome. So let me get this straight. People who have dedicated their lives to discipline study of God's word, they've learned the original language and the context. They've, they've given themselves over to the diligent study of the history of God's people and God's word. They got it wrong, but you got it right. One of us is drunk. One of us is dead wrong. And it's not the word. People take this word and they twist it. They bend it. They reshape it. They retranslate it. To make it say whatever they want. We turn from sound doctrine and we turn to fables because what we want We want all of the promises of God and none of the responsibilities of a Christian. Do you hear me? We want all the promises of God and none of the responsibilities of the Christian. So what we do is we ignore everything going on around us. We close our eyes and la, 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 la. And we refuse to make a committed choice. The committed choice of a believer is to follow the path laid out by the word of God through the teachings of Jesus and stay on that path and that path alone. Doubt is the mental state in which the mind remains suspended between two or more contradictory positions, unable to be certain of either of them. How much of a person's unbelief is rooted in their either inability or unwillingness to commit to a path? Your unbelief can be rooted in your inability or unwillingness to commit to a path. When you've committed to a path, you're on it. That's it. This is the road that I'm on. I will not turn left or right. This is the path. Some people try to cast blame on God because they just need a little more proof. The little more proof is down the road on the path. God has placed all the proof you're ever going to need, but it's on that path. You don't start on the pathway of God and he gives you a brochure answering all the questions you will ever have in your life. I must have dropped mine. The problem is we, we want a little bit more from God because we, we, before I commit, I need to be so sure I need to almost already be in heaven. Before I believe what God is doing today. I know what the Bible says, but insert excuse here. I know I shouldn't do this, but insert excuse here. I know the Bible warns me that all this is going to be happening in the last days. And I believe these are the last days, but all this is happening. But you know what? I know all this is happening, but it's not going to change my life. It's not going to change who I am. I doubt what God said about what's happening today, so I'm going to go on my own intuition because I'm much smarter than the people who wrote the Bible. And because we doubt what God is doing today, what we can see with our own eyes, we doubt what he says he will do in the future. Today, we're watching prophecy unfold right before our eyes. Every warning about the end times about confessing believers turning away from the word of God and embracing lies and fables and man-made doctrine, the doctrine that denies the word of God, the doctrine that denies the need for repentance. 
I heard this today. Actually, I've heard this a couple times, but it came up, came up in a conversation today. People saying, we're all saved. Because the word says that the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. See, we're all saved. Uh, no, no, there's this thing called context. And in the end, every knee will bow and every, will, every tongue will confess. Even those who are condemned. Even the unrepentant sinner is going to bow and confess. They're still unrepentant, unforgiven sinners, period. There is one way. When people say there's many ways, but the word of God, Jesus says, I am the door. The door. We deny what God is doing today because we think we have it figured out. We're better. If you read your Bible at all, you know what's happening and you know what's to come. And yet we still live our lives as though there's nothing to see here. How many of you have ever seen, uh, uh, let's see, uh, have seen this? You remember, the, you remember the BLM riots? Now, however you feel about it, I don't, I, I don't care about this, but this is the funny thing. Fiery but mostly peaceful protests. <laughs> okay, hang on. What's, what's behind that guy? <laughs> is, it, is, that, is that a campfire? They're just a bunch of people having a block party making s'mores? It's a mostly peaceful protest. The city was on fire! Are you serious? You talk about denying everything that's going on around you. This is nothing compared to the church's denial of what God is doing in the world today. This is nothing. When the church looks around and we say, nothing to see here. Some of you figured out that that was the... <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, moving right along. Um, yep, uh, It's a veggie tales thing. Never mind. Just moving right along. Nothing to see here. We have convinced ourselves that we're right, that God is wrong. We're on the wrong path, and that is why we have doubt. We doubt what's coming because we doubt what's happening. The reason we doubt what's happening is because we doubt what happened in the past. If you had confidence in what God did yesterday, then you'll have confidence in what God is doing today, and you'll have confidence for what God says he's doing tomorrow. All John the Baptist needed was for Jesus to say, yes, we're on the, we're on the right path. No matter what's going on in your life, we're on the right path. Starting in verse 25 says, and the time came where Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord, a Lord of heaven and earth, uh, that you have uh, hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it, seems good, uh, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and no one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. After all that, what Jesus says is, you can get rid of all of this doubt, all of this anxiety, all this wondering, if you just commit to me. Not me, not this church, to him. Commit to the path laid out in Scripture. Scripture and Scripture alone is our guide, period. The problem is, 
you got to learn what it says. That takes time. There's a lot of people in the world who say, I don't need to write, read the Bible, I have the Holy Spirit. My only response to that is, oh, Lord. No, he gave us the written word for a reason. He gave us literacy for a reason. Let's stop pretending. and Let's start doing what we know is right. Start defending the word of God by living the word of God. Make sense? Doubt is not our enemy. It is a reality, but we can, we can beat it by committing to a single path and just trusting in him. Because he has it all under control.